The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. May be seated. I was asked why sometimes there's not a sermon title in the bulletin, and sometimes there is. The answer is because the bulletin prints when it prints, and um, sometimes I don't have a sermon title uh, till well into Saturday. Uh, this one is titled, Blessed Are the Fools. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. We are in the second month of what is called Year A for our Sunday morning scripture readings. Year A being the year when our primary uh, storyteller from a gospel's perspective is the first gospel, the Gospel of Matthew. We Lutherans liking, really liking clever titles like that. Uh, what do you think we call the next year when the, when the gospel teller is, is the second gospel, the Gospel of Mark? Year B, that is correct. What do you think we call, I mean, the, the, the cleverness abounds. What do you think we call the next year when the third gospel is the, the, Luke? And the next one? Don't answer that because it's a trick question. The next one is actually year A again because John weaves into all three of them. So that's how that goes. Starting today now in Matthew's year and continuing for several weeks, uh, with Matthew's telling of the Transfiguration story and then Lent. But prior to that, we are going to spend some time with one of the absolute gems in Matthew's Gospel, that gem being what is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last week, we heard the very first thing Jesus ever said publicly in Matthew's Gospel, when to anybody who would listen, he said, Repent, for the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Here now, in the very next chapter, in this gem that has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount, and functions in Matthew's Gospel as sort of his inaugural address, he gives us some glimpses of what life in that kingdom looks like. Here is a fun fact. By way of a little more meaningful and fuller participation in worship these coming weeks, you could actually go home this week and read the Sermon on the Mount. You could do that. Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. Also in these next weeks, we are reading a few 
passages from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, which weighs in at 16 chapters and so is considerably longer than the Sermon on the Mount. But it too includes some gems, including possibly the most well-known being 1 Corinthians 13, which most of us have heard multiple times at weddings, which I'm sure more than a few of us had read at our weddings because it reads very, very well at our weddings. But it was not, first of all, written for a wedding. It was written, first of all, for the church, in this case the church in Corinth, which in this case being made up of real people like all churches are, was, in addition to some other issues, having a church fight as to which people, spiritually speaking, uh, were the real deal and therefore were, spiritually speaking, uh, better than more advanced than, greater than uh, other people in the church. And one group of people that, that you discover in Corinth who really thought they were really spiritually all that were people who had experienced what um, Paul calls the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues. Paul begins that gem called 1 Corinthians 13 like this. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels but do not have love, I'm just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and knowledge. If I have all faith so as to move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give away everything I have, if I hand over my body so that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Then he talks at the end of that chapter about what it means truly to be spiritual. As he says, spiritually speaking, there are three things that are greater than all things faith and hope and love. The greatest is love, he says. Here's another fun fact. Uh, by way of having a little fuller, maybe even more meaningful participation in worship these coming Sundays, you could go home and read the 16 chapters of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians this week. Pastor Roger, what was that first fun fact again? The first fun fact was you could go home and read the Sermon on the Mount this week, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Thank you for asking. And uh, Pastor Roger, what, what, what was the second fun fact again? The second fun fact, again, thank you for asking. You could, uh, you could read 1 Corinthians, the 16 chapters. Thank you, thank you for asking. Like a grilled cheese sandwich and tomato soup, like a thick ribeye and a hearty red, like a movie and popcorn, our reading today from 1 Corinthians pairs really well with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Because in 1 Corinthians, what Paul says is that given the fact that the Lord whom we worship came to die on a cross for us sinners, rather than come down hard as hell on us sinners, it's pretty obvious that what the world considers powerful and what God considers powerful, what the world considers wise and what God considers wise, what the world considers foolish and what God considers foolish as well as what the world considers great and what God considers great are not the same. Case in point number one being the fact that in the kingdoms of this world, the one who does the crucifying, Rome, for example, is viewed as the powerful one. Whereas the one who gets crucified, Jesus, for example, is viewed as the weak one. Not so, though, says Paul, for those who call Jesus Lord. For in his words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In the eyes of God and in the eyes of the world, Paul says, wisdom and foolishness, strength and weakness, power and powerlessness are not at all the same thing. In an earlier congregation I served, I knew a young man, let's call him Lance, who had been confirmed at that church. Um, wasn't in church really ever, but he had been confirmed there. And the time came when he and his partner, we will call her Vicky, asked me to do their wedding. During the course of uh, pre-marriage counseling, uh, it came up that Lance on more than one occasion had struck Vicky, had hit her hard. It also came out that growing up, he had often been struck, hit, beat up by his father until he got old enough and big enough, powerful enough, to turn the tables and beat up his father. And that apparently ended that. I asked him, did he really want to live in that kind of a home sometime? Where, is that the, is, where, where, where like the one he had been raised in, where, where you beat people up until they're big enough and strong enough to turn the tables? He said, I'm a lot bigger than my dad was. Let him try. I said to him, because he had been the confirmed of the church, so I don't know, it seemed like a good thought at the time. So I said to him, what do you think Jesus would say about that, Lance? He said, Jesus got himself killed. By the way, they did not get married, and Vicky eventually moved out and moved on. Lance may have been confirmed a Lutheran, but he was a confirmed Lutheran who thought Jesus was a fool. And Paul writes, the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God who makes known that what much of what the world calls wisdom, much of what the world calls powerful, much of what the world means when it says this is just how the world works, deal with it, all of that is in fact truly what is foolish. Examples of said foolishness abound. Do unto others before they do unto you. The richest person in the world is the one who has the most money. The happiest person in the world is the one who has the most money. The most important people are those at the tops of the ladders, not those at the bottom of the ladders, not to mention those who don't even have a ladder. The one with the most guns is the one who's the most secure. The one who is served is stronger than the one who serves. The one who takes is stronger than the one who gives or the one who gets taken from. The one who gets revenge is stronger than the one who forgives. The one who does the crucifying or the beating up is stronger than the one who gets crucified or beat up. All of which and more, according to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and Paul in 1 Corinthians, all of which and more is a bunch of damned foolishness, masking as if it were wisdom. 
The Sermon on the Mount begins with what have come to be known as the Beatitudes, which is derived from the Latin word which means blessed, and blessed, which can also sometimes be plant, translated blessed. Uh, I tried to research why and when, and you know what, it's a lost cause. It just, it, it's pronounced both ways. Um, it's a translation of Matthew's Gospel's Greek word makarioi, which as it turns out, absolutely surely, accurately can be translated as blessed or blessed, and which can then accurately be understood to mean um, worthy of admiration, worthy of praise, divinely favored, fortunate. Makarioi can also be translated as happy, <clears throat> although if we go that way we have to understand that it is referring to something deeper than the oftentimes shallow and superficial um, happy face kind of way in which we in English often use that word these days because the happiness Makarioi refers to, at least when it's used by the writers of scripture, is not so much about the look on my face because something I like happened, but rather about the condition of my soul because Jesus is Lord, no matter what happens. And here's the thing about these blesseds, these beatitudes that Jesus spoke. He is not naive. He is fully aware of the fact that in this sin-broken world where divine wisdom is called foolishness and where human folly is called wisdom, things do happen, and they will happen again. Rejoice and be glad, he says. Not because you're glad about every single thing that happens, but because you know the one who died to rise again. Thus come what may to be the kingdom of heaven come for you. In the meantime, in this world where divine wisdom is absolutely called foolishness and where human foolishness is so often called wisdom, our call, he says in the Sermon on the Mount, essentially the, probably the main theme of it, is to be the kingdom come here and now through you to your neighbor. To see those ignored by the world, but noticed by God. To lift up those exploited by the world, but beloved of God. To kneel down to serve while others are clamoring up to brag. To do what makes for peace in a world that loves making wars. To be deeply at peace in a world which keeps telling you you're supposed to be afraid to love your enemy in a world doing its best to point out more and more enemies, to comfort the grieving, and to promise life to the dying, to be what the world calls foolish, because you want to be in the world the love and the wisdom of Jesus Christ. Here's a third fun fact. You could go home this week and memorize the Beatitudes. You could do it one bite-sized piece at a time, one beatitude a day, and you'll be done in nine days. And when you're done with that, no matter where you were, you would always have this wisdom with you, in your heart, in your mind, in your soul. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. All of that, says the world, is foolishness. That being said, you know what? Looking around, seems to me the world needs more fools. Indeed, says Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those whom the world will call fools, for they are the kingdom of heaven. Amen.